that now we've been in a period for the last 15 years where it's been a long period of people going after growth again. And it seems like these magnificent seven stocks that people talk about feels like they're just going to continue forever. But, you know, the long history says that at the peak of these type of manias, and I think some of what you would say in some of the tech stocks, not the whole system like it was back in, in February of 2000, but some parts of it gets people get very, very excited, extrapolate these growth rates forever. And often that weight builds on itself and then becomes very tough to live up to the expectations. And that's sort of part of the roots of inefficient markets and behavioral finance that people will will extrapolate some of these 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 current growth rates for forever. And so I think that comes to value investing, some of the long-term merits of it. Um, but you got to be careful from getting too excited by these rapid growth rates. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of the Framework Podcast. I'm your host, Ana Trujillo-Limon, and this is our final episode in our special series on behavioral finance powered by Wisdom Tree. So we thought it would be super exciting to close out with Jeremy Schwartz, Wisdom Tree's Chief Global Investment Officer. Jeremy, welcome to the show, and thanks for making time for us. Thanks for having me, Ana. It's great to be here. Yeah, so we always love to get to know our guests a little bit more. So um, one really fun question I like to ask is, what did you want to be when you were little growing up? And how did you come to be the chief investment officer at Wisdom Tree? You know, I sort of always knew I liked numbers. I liked math. And my dad says he attributes my liking the market to sitting me on his lap as a baby and reading the stock pages with me. So I guess I always sort of had it in me. I mean, he, I, he, he, he looked at individual stocks and was, was, and I, I remember following them from way back when I was, when I was young. Um, but I did go to Penn and, and knowing I wanted to study finance and business and, and th- I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do, but I thought I wanted to be a portfolio manager, like, uh, the, the active managers picking stocks and trying to do that and not doing exactly that. But, you know, as a, as a CIO, we are creating systematic strategies that, that does have a feel of, of being a portfolio manager. So I, uh, I, I really came to uh, what I, what I thought growing up. Oh, I always love to hear those stories and to picture you getting the stock tips read to you and things like that. How that's such a neat story. I love that. It's, it's often, it's interesting to see different people's different paths and how they got to, to the industry and stuff. So that's, that's great. Um, so let's talk a little bit about behavioral finance and, and why wisdom tree felt it was important to kind of tackle this topic together and, and, why we felt that this was a necessary series to do. Well, you can have all the best ideas about how you want to invest your money, but it often comes down to all the real issues of the day to day and what are your biases and how do you look at the world and uh, without the right guards on your own emotions, you could get out of, out of kilter in terms of what is actually the best plan. I mean, my work with Dr. Siegel at Penn, my, my, he had been stocks for long run, which is a very long-term way to thinking and behavioral biases. You see all sorts of information come at you every moment of the day spurs you for action. Well, how do you step back and think about the long run and really um, doing less, you know, less is more in many of those things. But, but even, you know, Siegel, who was this efficient markets buy and hold sort of long-term thinking, you know, his best friend was Bob Schiller from, from, Yale University, went, they, they went to MIT together. There's some funny stories about the two of them. And from Siegel's first edition of Stocks Wrong in 94, I, my first project with him was the third edition, the 2002 edition. 
And one of my contributions to that was the first chapter in behavioral finance for Siegel was he had been great, great friends with Schiller, but he had never had covered that in, in depth in, in his book. And we added that chapter. It's been there from the third, fourth, fifth, sixth editions now where we talk through going to a behavioral specialist and trying to get counseling because you make all these mistakes. Uh, and it was sort of an interesting chapter, but I've had an affinity for behavioral finance, given that was my first big project with Siegel, was working on the behavioral finance chapter for the third edition. That's awesome. So for people who haven't had the pleasure of reading it yet, can you get, kind of give a couple of takeaways that you want advisors to, to take from that work, the, that chapter? Yeah, well, it, it's a real in-depth guide across all these big biases. But, you know, this was we wrote it in the in the tech bubble, you know, when people were going and chasing, extrapolating growth and saying these this sort of growth rate is going to continue forever. And we try to talk about, well, how, how do you um, what are what are the things that cause people to do that? Now, we've been in a period for the last 15 years where it's been a long period of people going after growth again. And it seems like these magnificent seven stocks that people talk about feels like they're just going to continue forever. But, you know, the long history says that at the peak of these type of manias, and I think some of what you would say in some of the tech stocks, not the whole system like it was back in, in February of 2000, but some parts of it gets people get very, very excited, extrapolate these growth rates forever. And often that weight builds on itself and then becomes very tough to live up to the expectations. And that's sort of part of the roots of, inefficient markets and behavioral finance that people will will extrapolate some of these 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 current growth rates for forever. And so I think that comes to value investing, some of the long-term merits of it. Um, but you got to be careful from getting too excited by these rapid growth rates. Yeah. And um, going back to, to Siegel's work, he does have a really great commentary that you guys publish on Wisdom Tree's website. Um, so that like, if you're looking for some really good insights from him in particular, I, I really enjoyed catching up on that in preparation for this episode. Um, so let's, you know, my colleague, Brian Money, he recently attended an FPA event in um, Washington, D.C., and he heard Brian Portnoy speak. And Brian talked about how we are drowning in information, but starving for wisdom. And so there's so much research on behavioral finance and behavioral economics that advisors don't necessarily know how to turn that information into wisdom and implement in their practices. So as a researcher yourself, how do you recommend advisors take away practical implications from all of this, this plethora of research? Yeah, it's, a, it's such a great comment and, and question is there is so much noise and so much information out there. You got to know who to trust and what where you should spend your time and where to focus. I and mean, that's one of the things we do with model portfolios are trying to help give people a, a good foundation to work from of here's taking all these academic insights, building it into a well-rounded portfolio that then you can help really coach and counsel all your clients. You know, because one of the hardest things as a as an advisor is you're really often serving as their psychologist, which is exactly the issues of these behavioral finances. So leveraging thought leaders uh, like, like I, like I think ourselves and, and trying to build the best practices into a portfolio that is grounded in the academic research is it's easier now than ever to build sort of factor based systematic strategies that takes the best insights from finance and put together in a, a useful solution. And so I think, uh, Knowing where where your strengths are and what you can do to, to build well-rounded portfolios is a, is a key part of that. Yeah, and in this series alone, we've had some really great um, insights from some behavioral finance experts. Like we had uh, Samantha Lamas was the first episode in this series, and she talked a lot about about you know why 
clients fire their advisors and just different ways that that behavioral finance plays into that decision and how to kind of, you know, kind of tackle that problem, I guess, if you will. Um, And then we had Dr. Julie Raggetts, who talked a lot about employing behavioral finance research and and theories into running a better business and making better decisions. And Daniel Crosby, of course, um, he talked a lot about, you know, just I love how Dr. Crosby is able to take very complex subjects and kind of make them nice and neat. He talked about the three B's and, and the four, you know, behavioral finance traits that advisors should look out for when it comes to their clients. And then we have Mary Bell Carlson. We talked a lot about communication and how to, you know, use that uh, behavioral finance research in that realm and kind of better communicate with your clients for all of this. Um, so all of, you know, all of these wonderful researchers have been on this. Um, and Dr. Crosby, tying back to what you said, talked a lot about seeking out those thought leaders, listening to all, like your podcast, his podcast, different things that are out there that give you insights every week into this type of subject matter. So that's wonderful. Um, so, you know, speaking of research, you've done a ton. And what, what have been some of your favorite research projects and why? Part of being a great fiduciary is helping your clients understand their full financial picture, and it should be no different for your life. Do you know what your business is worth? Get your firm valuation today with our free valuation calculator. Whether you're looking to share equity with your team, buy another firm, prepare for an exit, or just simply want to see the market value of your business, visit carsongroup.com valuation to get started. Well, I, I think my first project working with Dr. Siegel was as he was going through the tech bubble and saying, you know, he was going from his own transition from thinking about just being a vanguard, buy the market, buy it as cheaply as possible. I think his own portfolio started being implemented, influenced by that Bob Schiller behavioral finance that things can have these bubbles. And once you things move away from fair value, you got to do something different about it. And it really took three or four years, but all the seminal research for his second book, The Future for Investors, came out in 2005. It was like a three to four year project of where we studied, you know, the original 500 stocks in the S&P 500. It led to us co-authoring a paper, you know, what happened to the original stocks in the S&P 500. And we took on this theory, you know, these two McKinsey authors wrote a book, Creative Destruction, why, you know, all these sort of new companies are critical to achieving the market returns. And we did this study saying, well, if you bought and held the original SP 500, which was 20% in energy, today it's only 3%. It was over 20% in material stocks. Again, today, less than 3%. You held nothing in tech. You had very little healthcare. Things that became 50% of the market, you held less than 5% in these original companies. And it was like, well, how much were you going to lag the market if you bought all these dying companies? And what we found was not only did you not lag the market, you beat the market for 70, almost 70 years. And it was this whole big exploration of why growth is not return. Why people think you need fast sales growth, you need fast earnings growth. If you're looking at countries, you need fast GDP growth. And often the things that people get extra excited about get bid up in price and you end up paying too much for it and it ends up leading to disappointing long-term returns. So that was... You know, a paper, it was a, a multi-year project, became a paper. It was the foundation for the future for investors. And and really, it was a predecessor to me joining Wisdom Tree 20 years ago was it was very uh, right in line with the research that the founders of Wisdom Tree were doing at the same time about how do you reconstruct stock indexes. So it was 
it was exciting. It was a foundational in my career at the beginning, and it, it's led to a lot of great, uh, great work with Dr. Siegel since. Awesome. No, that's a great segue too, because I, w- I had wanted to kind of, you you contributed to that, the future, invest, future for investors. And I, I'm curious about, you know, people pick up that book or advisors pick up that book. What are the lessons you kind of want them to take away from that work? Well, and you say how much of today, 20 years later, you know, we got the tech bubble of 2000 and Siegel became known. Big cap tech stocks are suckers bet March 14th of 2000. Like the day NASDAQ peak, he had this op-ed in the Wall Street Journal about why you can never justify those valuations. And 20 years later, people are saying is today like 2000 because we've had such excitement for tech and AI is a theme and, and we're believers in artificial intelligence. We actually think it's going to lead to better productivity growth for the next five, seven years and higher real economic growth. That's implications for interest rates, and it should lead to some higher interest rates. Um, you know, now when we look at valuations, I, we won't, we wouldn't say the technology sector today broadly is anywhere near like it was in 2000. You know, we mm-hmm. people put, you'll see a chart on social media about the NASDAQ performance versus small caps, because small caps have also been terrible places for much of the last decade. It's been net, you know, that was in seven and the relative performance looks like the NASDAQ is so much higher. But when you look at the valuations, the PE of the, the broad tech sector is 30 on forward PEs. In 2000, it was twice as high. It was over 60. So it, it, yes, it's high. It's much higher than the non-tech stocks, about 10 PE points higher. But it's not bubble territory like 2000. So that's one big picture point. Um, but you could get excited about technology and it still leads to maybe it's not necessarily the best place to be. We could have the internet was going to have profound implications across how we communicate, but you get too excited and pay too much for those stocks. And so what we can say, you could get anchored in AI is going to be transformative. It's going to have a lot of powerful impact on the economy. You may just be cautious about chasing the performance if it gets, you know, some segments of the market get too excited. Mm-hmm. That's great. Um, so I'm curious, just to just to go off on a little tangent here, you you brought up AI, and I'm just curious about your perspective as a thought leader in the industry on AI's, you know, how it will transform our industry in general. Well, we're we're pushing ourselves. We're running a few different ETFs using a machine intelligence team uh, at Voya. Voya is one of our our, our sub advisor partners, and we have two value funds today that are being driven, you know, entirely. I mean. The, the underlying investment strategy is is AI driven, where um, you know it's sort of AI value strategies where they're using signals. You know, a lot of quantitative research is based on having a formula, and this is where the for, where the machines look at patterns in the data and try to find things that the humans might not see because of the complex relationship. So we are we're even running two ETFs today. With that, we have sort of sector strategies that are designed. To go after the, the sort of AI components and in, in companies in that ecosystem, so that's that's a concept. But I do believe we're going to see more benefits from it over time. Uh, and, and the question is, what does it mean for the markets as a whole? Is my view. My 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 one comment was it's going to lead to better economic growth and higher productivity. That's that's positive for interest rates. And that that how you think about where is the interest rate going to be at the end of this Fed cycle? Because we all talk about mm-hmm. Fed and inflation, but Productivity helps overcome inflationary pressures. Things have big economic impacts. That's the big thing. And then 
you'll, you have to find ways to leverage it yourselves. You know, everybody will find ways where the AI will make you better at what you do. It'll free up more of your time to do other things. That's the productivity enhancing nature of the technology. We're all going to find applications for it making us better at our jobs is my belief. For sure. I mean, as I'm a, more of a writer and an editor perspective, and I think a lot of my colleagues in my profession kind of feel at, might be a threat, but I'm one of those people that's like, no, it's very exciting to, I've been playing with different things, trying to figure out how to use it and how to just leverage it and get to know it. And so anyways, that's um, more like lower level stuff for my, for my profession. No, it's getting better. Like we have people who have put blogs where they're writing a blog and they'll put it through ChatGBT for the first round of editing and it, mm -hmm. it could help. And there's different, definitely different ways we think it could be be useful for research, so just like Google became one of the internet search engines. People are going to be using these to find answers to, to various questions, and and uh, research on on writing is definitely one of those places you'll you'll find an application. I'm sure. For sure. So you you've talked about how you kind of keep updated with everything Warren Buffett writes and puts out there, and you you talked specifically about the twenty punch card rule regarding like the fewer decisions you make, the better off you'll be. So tell me a little bit about how that ties into behavioral finance and specifically what y'all are doing over there at Wisdom Tree. Yeah, we, I talked about the future for investors already, and that was in Siegel trying to think about going after the tech bubble, and part of that. He said, go read everything Warren ever written because he were trying to, he was trying to bring the value sensitive guide to that. And both him and Warren were notably cautioning about the tech bubble in 2000. They shared the stage talk about that. That was sort of the genesis of that comment. But yeah, so I, I, the first project 20 years ago was reading every annual letter he, he wrote and, and I stayed in tune with all of his comments about his types of strategies. It led to even. I'd say today our largest ETF today for equities is a quality dividend growth ETF. And it was when even Warren was going from being a value investor to, I'd say, a quality investor. He talks about, even recently, he talks about Coca-Cola and American Express as some of his long-term holds because they were focused on growing their dividends over time. And, and when he talks about in his letters, his companies had high returns in capital with low leverage or these quality franchises at reasonable prices. And so we launched this Buffett factor, which is our quality dividend growth family of funds was something that was inspired by Buffett. But that in terms of a behavioral finance, there is this tendency to want to trade all the time. As you said before, you're, you get all sorts of information all the time coming at you, you know, the, the TV, CNBC and Bloomberg, you see these flashing reds and greens and you're motivated to take action from all of that. But Buffett's point is you don't have to swing at every pitch. You could, and actually would be much more served to swing at much less pitches than if you only took 20 investments ever, you would be much better served because you would focus on really what are the best opportunities of any given time. And so I, I, I've been, I, I think that is an interesting angle where you don't have to trade all the time. You, just like, you know, the, the baseball player doesn't have to swing at every pitch. You want to take your shots. And, and really feel have conviction in those shots. And I've said that that Buffett factor, quality, dividend growth should be one of those punches is one of the things I've said. And, and I actually think his movement into Japan, uh, three years ago, I wrote, you should follow Buffett into Japan. His second largest country outside the US is Japan. And I still think it's one of the value trades that is set for, you know, the Nikkei has been deflating for 30 years, um, but it's still one of the cheapest markets just getting to it's not quite back to the levels it was in 1989 when it's peaked, but Buffett buying Japan is another pretty interesting idea. 
and, and I think also it could be on one of those 20 punch cards that, that people take. Very cool. Um, so, okay, we have we have been asking listeners to kind of ask our, our guests some questions. And for this series in particular, a lot of folks have been wondering what you all as, as behavioral finance thought leaders, chief investment officers, um, recommend in terms of training or or your book books you feel should be required reading for this topic. Tell our listeners a little bit about what you recommend there. Well, Stocks for the Long Run, the sixth edition, I, I, it's hard for me not to endorse my own book with the professor. So that is that is a good one. But if you go back to the archives, that Future for Investors from 05, it's 20 years past, but it, it had some timeless lessons on thinking about where you were in tech back then and where it is today. Um, you know, Bob Schiller has been one of these uh, preeminent thought leaders on behavioral finance. So I think some of his writings uh, are, are also some of the sort of must reads in, in terms of what you think about behavioral finance. Awesome. And as we, we are coming to a close, um, I always like to get people's perspective on, on what they wish people in the industry would reframe their thinking on, on the topic we're talking about. So specifically on behavioral finance, as it relates to investing, what do you wish people would reframe their thinking about? Well, now that bonds yield so much more, you know, like one of the big questions is the equity risk premium is is often covered in this behavioral finance literature. Is why do stocks return more than bonds? Well, they're riskier and that you need to compensate people more to to buy stocks versus bonds. And people say, well, now that you get five and a half percent, very risk free with, float, you know, basically the shortest end of the treasury curve is yielding over 5%. Does that provide so much more competition for stocks that people should really not be investing in stocks much more today? That you have this very negative, the lowest equity risk premium than you've had historically. And one of the things we often point out, and there's a lot of people who put just comparing the earnings yield on the S&P 500, that's sort of one of the ways we look at as looking at the expected returns on stocks, and they compare it to a nominal bond yield, like the 10-year treasury at over 4% today, and they say your equity risk premium today is maybe 1%. And we say, reframe, you've got to think about stocks as real assets. That's sort of one long-term literature that we show that stocks have provided purchasing power protection from inflation over time. They've been one of the best assets for inflation protection. Inflation is a real concern now after 40 years of not concerning about inflation. It's been a real issue for the last, uh, since the pandemic. And we think that inflation memory is going to stick with people. But because of that, and well, and really because of the, the demonstrated history that stocks have provided protection from inflation over periods, you've got to look at stocks versus real bond yields. The tips after inflation adjusted bond yield is below 2% today. It's around 180. And then you compare a 5% earnings yield versus the 180 on tips. That's over a 3% equity premium, which is basically exactly where it was over the last 200 years. Stocks beat bonds in Siegel's long-term data by about 350 basis points since 1802. And really, you're right back to very close to that 3% equity premium today. We were spoiled as equity investors because bonds were such bad deals for much of the last decade. There was a time when those tips yields were negative. You would think that's crazy. Again, that, that might have been the bubble in bonds was negative tips yields. And that was, you know, a behavioral finance lesson too. And people were willing to, they were so afraid of inflation and bonds were providing this hedge asset of choice risk off. I'm going to go to bonds. They're willing to accept, they're willing to pay an insurance premium to, to own bonds at a negative yield 
we'd caution you from doing that again. Um, but stocks are offering you pretty good compensation versus bonds today. And, uh, and be careful from negative yielding bonds there. Yeah, that's that question has been getting some really good answers. That was an, another one. Well, well, Jeremy, this has been wonderful. I, I have enjoyed chatting with you. Um, and I always like to end with, is there anything you want to add that we didn't ask that you would like our listeners to know? Well, we, we appreciate the opportunity to be here with you. We, we produce a lot of content on, on our social media pages on Twitter. You can follow a lot of my, my real time thoughts at Jeremy D. Schwartz and, and if you like what, what you heard, you know, we do do that podcast similar behind the markets where you can get our, our ideas every week and keep in touch with. We're try, we try to keep it focused on the key economic issues of the day, as well as the big market topics that we think are, are important for portfolios as well. So, so follow us, follow me there for, for more insights every week. Awesome. Well, Jeremy, thank you. And thanks to Wisdom Tree for powering this really great series with some wonderful behavioral finance thought leaders, including yourself. And I appreciate your time. Thanks so much, Anna. And thank you everybody else for tuning into this week's episode of the Framework Podcast. Please be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode.